On this podcast, we share a lot of stories and often the mental health aspect of the work we do creeps in. If you think you might be feeling depressed, stressed, anxious, or even overwhelmed, please consider visiting our sponsor, BetterHelp. BetterHelp offers licensed therapists who are trained to listen and help you. And they even have therapists who specifically work with first responders. You just fill out a questionnaire to help assess your specific needs, and then you get matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. You can talk to your therapist in a private and online environment at your convenience. Many first responders work rotating and often odd schedules, so this format makes it really easy to talk to someone when it's convenient for you. If you don't click with your therapist, you can request a new one at no additional charge anytime. Join the 3 million plus people who have taken charge of their mental health with an experienced BetterHelp therapist. Get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com backslash roadie. That's BetterHelp.com slash roadie, R-O-A-D-I-E. You can also find the link in the show notes. If you put a couple of first responders together in a room, something interesting happens. Before too long, they'll begin sharing stories. They're not trying to one-up each other, they're simply finding common ground. I was fortunate enough to serve my community as a paramedic and a firefighter for over 25 years. As you can imagine, during that time, I acquired my fair share of stories about the incidents and the calls I was involved in. I thought I might write a book, but then I decided sharing these stories collectively in a podcast would give anyone listening an insider's view into the work that first responders do every single day. These are the stories of the men and women who courageously serve the public or as I like to call them, Stories from the Road. All right, welcome back to Stories from the Road. Joining us today is uh, one of our favorite guests from the past, retired detective Vinny is here to share another story. Vinny, I'll turn the mic over to you and let you share your story from the road. Uh, Thank you, Phil. Great to be back. Thanks for having me again. Uh, So on my last podcast, I explained to you and I gave the listeners a a little background as to what the New York City Police Emergency Service Unit uh, is and does. This, um, this time I'm going to hone in a little bit more on a particular assignment. It's got a light side to it. It may bring a chuckle to you and then uh, go into a story. So it is Monday, May 8th. The year is 2000, and it is the very first day of the specialized training school. Uh, I'm a police officer. I have just over seven years on the job at the New York City Police Department. I'm coming from a precinct in Queens. Uh, finally accepted into the emergency service unit. And before you can be assigned to one of the emergency service units, 10 trucks throughout the city, you have to complete all the training. The training is eight hours a day, five days a week for about seven months. And they train you on everything from uh, heavy weapons, tactics, uh, hazmat technicians, scuba, ropes, vehicle extrication, dignitary protection, trench rescue, elevator rescues, lock picking, EMT, you name it, you go to the entire gamut. And there is no failing this course and passing that course, you either pass everything or it's back to your prior command because the members of the emergency service, you don't have to be able to do every aspect of the job. The class has about, uh, starts out with about 32 people in it. And one of the first things that they like to do in their curriculum is get the heavy weapons and tactics and the dignitary protection 
education and, and components out of the way first. And the reason for that is, is they want to have a large contingent of people that they could deploy, God forbid, should something happen. Now, realize this is in 2000. This is prior to 9-11, but there was still that concern of some type of uh, terrorist threat or activity. The second part to that is every September, New York City hosts the uh, United Nations General Assembly. And the city of New York sees a, a contingent of dignitaries and state leaders from all over the world during the UN General Assembly. It is the Super Bowl of the Emergency Service Unit, if you will. It's every man up. The members of the Emergency Service Unit perform, in addition to dignitary protection, they do site protection, they do counter-sniper duties, they perform as counter-assault teams in motorcades. So the first things that they always like to do is get all that training out of the way so that if the UN General Assembly falls within the seven-month training period, they could deploy the men and women that are in the class out to the field and then bring them back to finish up. And that's typically what happens in the specialized training school. And that is what's going to happen in 2000 while we're there. So the class is starting in May. We're going to get deployed for a week during the UN General Assembly. They'll bring us back, finish up the training, and then out to the trucks. So one of the things that they had at the specialized training school, and it was a tradition there, is every class that graduated had a board, uh, like a, almost like a pinup board in the hallways. Whenever you were in the hallways on breaks, this is something gave you something to look at, and you got to see uh, the men and women that came before you. And it always showed pictures of their training and everything that they did. And one of the highlights of the training and the highlights of the board, coincidentally, is a bridge climb. So one of the things that you have to do to get out of the emergency service unit is you have to be able to climb the Brooklyn Bridge. And you have to be able to climb it so that you can go up and get distressed people who want to jump off of any bridge in the city of New York. So most of the pictures that were on these boards from prior classes focused on the bridge climb. You know, here are the guys tied into the cables and they're smiling. And that's, it was on every board in the hallway. And the reason why I'm telling you this is because it's, it's going to come into play in this, in this story. So while we're in this school, there are instructors. The instructors, uh, many of them are police officers and sergeants just like us. But there's a lieutenant that oversees the school. And to just keep it simple, his name is Lieutenant Mike. Lieutenant Mike is uh, a hard ass. He is mean. All he does is come in and yell at everybody. He brings nothing education-wise. He's there for disciplinary reasons to keep everybody on track and keep everybody on their toes. He'd pass you in the hallway. He wouldn't even smile or wave to you. He'd walk right by you like you weren't even there, like you were a coat of paint. So May, June, July, sometime over the summer of 2000, July or August, I get a request from a, a friend of mine, a female friend. Uh, she wants to move into a new apartment. So she's getting an apartment with a, uh, with another woman that she went to college with. And the apartment is in Long Beach, which is a Oceanside community here in Long Island. Right on the boardwalk, beautiful place. She asked me, she knows I have a truck. She knows I'm pretty handy. She needed a little odds and ends done before she can move her stuff. And so I obliged. So I help her move her things into the apartment. It was a Saturday morning. Uh, I was in the STS class. We were off on Saturdays and Sundays. I go to her apartment and I meet her roommate, nice young lady. Uh, the She comes in and sees that I'm kind of handy and I'm hanging shelves and pictures and stuff like that. And the roommate asks if I would do the same for her. So, of course, I obliged. I Once I finish in uh, the, the first room, I go over to the second room. Now I'm in her bedroom hanging pictures. While I'm in there, her family arrives. Um, I hear them make their way down the hallway to the bedroom. And in the doorway, lo and behold, it's Lieutenant Mike. He looks at me, I look at him, and we don't know what to say to each other. I'm trying to explain to him why I'm in his daughter's bedroom. 
And I don't know this girl. I never met this girl. He starts screaming at me. What the hell are you doing in my daughter's bedroom? Blah, blah, blah. The, his wife uh, comes running in. What's going on? So he starts yelling. He's one of my, my officers. Blah, blah, blah. So it was a funny encounter. And the wife is now really chiming in. She's breaking his chops. She says to me, tell me the truth. You know, what kind of, what kind of guy is my husband at work? Is he a jerk? So I'm laughing along. I'm playing along. No, he's a great guy, kind guy, you know, kindest guy I've ever met. Love working for him. All lies. And, uh, (laughs) we, we, we kind of hit it off and he announces he's going to take everybody out to lunch. So we go to a bar in Long Beach. It's a Saturday afternoon in the summer, beautiful day. And, uh, Three of the guys that I'm in the uh, class with are from Long Beach. And uh, I can't describe these guys, but I could tell you the likelihood of them being in a bar in Long Beach on a Saturday afternoon was, was very high. So I walk into the bar and my head's on a swivel. I'm like, God, I hope I don't run into anybody I know. How do I explain this? How do I explain that I'm out to lunch with the lieutenant of the, the, the specialized training school? I sit down. I don't put my back to the door. I'm watching every person as they walk in and out, ready to bail. He takes a liking to me. Go back to class. September rolls around, and the plan is is that they're going to send, of the 30 people that are now remaining in the class, two had left, uh, 25 people are going to go to the UN General Assembly detail, and five are going to go out and work in the trucks for uh, one of the uh, trucks throughout the city for one week. So everybody wants to go to the truck. Nobody wants to go to the UN uh, detail because they do everything in reverse seniority. So the junior guys get all the crap assignments. And the crappiest assignment you can have in the emergency service unit is a stairwell detail. And what that is, is that when any dignitary comes to town, let's say the president, the president of the United States comes to town, he's going to stay at the Waldorf Astoria. He occupies an entire floor of that hotel. So he stays on the 12th floor. Well, the emergency service unit gets to guard the 13th and 11th floor. And you're standing in a heavy vest helmet for at least 12 hours with a long gun in a stairwell, making sure nobody, nobody intrudes that, 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 that floor. It's, it's the worst assignment you can have in the emergency service unit. And there aren't many bad assignments there. And that's usually given to the junior guys. So the assignment comes down. I'm not the senior guy in the class. I'm by no way the valedictorian. I get assigned to one of the trucks. I'm one of the five guys. I don't know for sure but I have a very good feeling my new friend, Lieutenant Mike, uh, you know, took care of me. Nobody else liked them. Nobody liked them in the class. So I guess I was his only one. So I get assigned to one of the trucks. I'm assigned to eight trucks. Uh, eight truck is in Brooklyn and they cover the area of Brooklyn that butts up to the uh, Brooklyn bridge. And I'm working with a gentleman. We'll call him officer Andy. I know officer Andy. He was, if you remember my story from previous he was uh, one of the transit emergency service unit officers that came in. So I had uh, worked with him in the past in transit police department. So at least I'm working with a familiar face. My first day out on patrol. It's Wednesday, September 6th. Just to put things in perspective, I'm doing an 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. We're out on patrol. We've answered a couple of various jobs. It's very busy. It was a nice day. It was a clear day. And about 3 p.m., we get dispatched to a jumper up uh, for, you know, in police terms, a jumper up is somebody who's threatening to commit uh, suicide. They're up. They have, it's either jumper up or jumper down. So we respond, the dispatcher assigns one truck. They're going to come in from the Manhattan side. We're going to come in from the Brooklyn side. 
The units get there. They confirm there's a jumper on the top of the tower of the Brooklyn Bridge. My first damn day on the road. I haven't even finished the training yet. This is my luck. I don't have a fear of heights. I just don't prefer them. Okay. I'm a scuba diver. I'm a trench guy. I prefer down over up every day of the week. Uh, I'd rather dig in the yard than climb the roof. But, you know, you have to be able to do everything. I'm not out of the class yet. It is what it is. I have to do it. We roll up on the scene and the I'm in the smaller truck. The big truck, which is closer, is there already. They have the truck pulled over to the side of the road. And I see a ground ladder from the top of the big truck to the suspended span of the bridge. Get out of the truck. There's a sergeant in the truck. His name is Sergeant Tommy D. And the sergeant comes to me and says, come on, kid, you and me, we're going up. Okay, no problem. I throw my harness on. I climb to the roof of the truck, climb this ground ladder onto the main cable and suspend my and tie myself in. It's nerve wracking. It's like anything else. You figure it out. Don't look down. Just keep looking up. Yep, look straight, look up, don't look down. And we're climbing the Brooklyn Bridge. We get up a little bit of ways. And it takes if you if if you don't know, it takes about 25, 30 minutes to climb a bridge because you have to keep unlocking yourself in and reconnecting yourself every time you cross the suspender. We're going up, we see the jumper, one truck's going up from the other side, and the, we're gonna we're gonna kind of pin him in. It's the, the, the standard, uh, what we do, just to avoid him from taking up any additional ground. We don't want him moving around up there. We're ascending, myself and the sergeant. And he says to me, you okay? I'm okay. He says to me, piece of cake, just like you did it in school. I said, Sarge, I got to tell you, we haven't covered this in school yet. <laughs> and he turns around and he says, what? What do you mean? What do you mean you haven't done this in school yet? I said, Sarge, we haven't gotten to this yet. He goes, how the hell did you know what to do? I said, Sarge, I saw all the pictures hanging in the hallway. I saw all the guys. I saw the way they were, <laughs> you know, they were locked in. He starts to freak out, telling me, please, whatever you do, don't freak out. Let's turn around. Let's go back down. I said, Sarge, we're not going back down. Come on, let's go. Please don't embarrass me. Let's do this. He goes, if you got a problem, let me know. No problem. We'll turn around. We'll go back down. Sarge, not going to be a problem. Let's go. He leads the way. I'm right behind him. We climb all the way up. We're right at the foot of the tower. Now, mind you, we're, you're walking on a, which is equivalent to a large pipe. It's not square. It's round. You can't put your two feet side by side. It's right foot forward, left foot forward, and you climb up. We get to the top of the tower. The jumper is sitting on the edge of the tower with his legs dangling off the side and tells us, the sergeant and I, just the two of us, you come any closer, I'm going to jump. This guy's not letting us onto the tower. We're on the cable. Doesn't want to talk to anybody. The guys from the Manhattan side are up on the tower with him. He won't let us up on the tower as well. Uh, doesn't want to talk. He's got a Walkman uh, in his hand, earphones in his ear, and he's listening to his Walkman. And, you know, we're asking him, a guy, you know, what are we doing here? Are we going? The rule with jumpers and any suicidal people, as cold and as harsh as this may seem, if they're serious, they'll have done it before you got there. Most people who have not committed suicide when you got there, it's typically most of the time a cry for help. Think of the times involved here. Somebody had to see him. Somebody had to call 911. Somebody had to get there. It took us 20 minutes to get there. It took us 30 minutes to climb the bridge. The guy's already up there for an hour. And he doesn't want to talk to anybody. You can't talk to him. He's got his earphones in. He doesn't want to hear anything from anybody. 
Brooklyn Bridge also has a pedestrian bridge, and there are pedestrians now filling the pedestrian walkway. Nobody's just riding their bicycle by or walking by. They're stopped. They're engaged. The roads shut down to vehicular traffic. And if you've ever been at that height, every time the wind blows, you feel it. It goes right through you. I'm not really dressed for the occasion as far as you know warmth. Didn't think I was going to be standing up there for any significant amount of time. All I can remember is saying to myself, God, I wish I was doing a stairwell detail right now. And we, we were up there, no joke, for two and a half hours. And we're asking him, when are you going to do this? When are you going to make a decision? He said, well, my music is out. I'm out. And he was true to his word because his music must have stopped. And he shoved himself off the, off the tower and down he goes. I got to tell you, Phil, this is going to sound cold and uncaring. I was about face and on my way down before he even hit the ground. I couldn't wait to get down. I was not having it. I was, you know, I was not comfortable with, you know, being up there at that height. I was not comfortable without being able to have my two legs side by side, my two feet side by side. My only option was, again, right foot forward, left foot forward. That was it. And it's up there and it's, it's cold, it's windy. And every time the wind blows, you're, uh, you know, you begin to, to, to shrivel. So, you hear the, the the collected gasp of all the people there. It's a sound that you will you know never forget. He doesn't hit the roadway. He doesn't go down to the water. He lands in a parapet, so which was actually really helpful because it, it contained him. The sound that he hit when he when he, when he hit the ground was god awful, but what was good is that it contained him and it kept his remains from public view. It was really a uh, for lack of better words, for, given the situation, again, not to sound cold or mean, it was a, it was a perfect landing. He, there was no way he was surviving. There wasn't a, an option where in which he was going to survive. He had chosen to take his life. He took it, and it was the best case scenario. So we begin the descent. We go down. If it took us 25 minutes to get up, it took me about two to get down, at least as I can recall. I get down there. The patrol lieutenant's there. Uh, we'll call him Lieutenant Ritchie. He was a character. I knew him. I'd already uh, had a couple of run-ins with him, but nothing bad, all good. And I remember him saying to me, he came over and walked to me, goes, what the hell did you say to him? I says, Lou, I didn't say anything to him. He wasn't even listening to us. He goes, you're out here one day and you already killed somebody. And, and they're making, you know, listen, it's, it's police humor. They're making a, you know, they're making a light of it. So this is, he knew I was shook. And I was like, Lou, I'm sorry. I don't know what to tell you. Uh, you know, he wouldn't even let us go on to the tower to talk to him. So he goes, he goes, boy, you gone effed up. Now go over there and clean up your mess. So I, well, I'm on the roadway now. I go down the roadway to where the parapet is, where he, he went straight down uh, from the tower. And there's another, you know, rookie emergency cop standing there with a body bag in his hand and two shovels. And uh, that's what we had to do. My first day out. Because it was an eight-hour tour, we had to go back to the truck. Um, the guys made dinner. I think they'd already committed to spaghetti. It wasn't a good call that night. I remember not being able to eat. This is, uh, you know, this was my introduction to ESU. And if you think that this is something that these guys do every day in and out, it isn't. Uh, I could tell you that in the 13 years I spent in that unit, I may have had two or three more jumpers in total. Again, it's my luck that I get a jumper and a guy that actually jumps. I had one other guy jump on me, but. He actually lived. He jumped from a, a, a highway overpass. He escaped from a, a hospital in Queens and uh, stood out on the overpass sign and, and jumped. He wasn't from a high enough angle just to really mangle himself up good. But 
uh, you know, for that to happen and for that to happen on my first day, having not finished the training, it's kind of tough. So I'm going to try and show you one other picture. All right. This one here, I'm going to move the mic. Probably yeah, that's fine. Out, this is a news. This is a news clipping. Mm -hmm. it's September 19th. There's my class doing the uh, training, the climb of the Brooklyn Bridge. Oh, okay. Formally. So, <laughs> so <laughs> I missed the formal training by uh, uh, exactly nine days. So we went back to we went back to class that week, and the next week they had intended of having done the bridge climb, and that's when we did it. Uh, we did it on September 19th, 2000. I had pictures, and of course, all the instructors were like, "Hey, kid, you want to show us the way? You want to show us how to do it?" <laughs> and of course, my humble answer is, uh, "No, it's been a week. I forgot a lot." Uh, I was going to ask if they made you climb it again or if they let you sit it out since you already did it. No, we had to do it again because what the, the purpose of the training was to not only climb up there, but once you climb up there, first of all, you want to go up there. That's where they take the class picture. Right. So the, tr the training was not something that I would ever want to sit out of. Um, you're going up there with your entire class. When you reach the top, that's where we would take our, um, our class picture or company picture, if you will. We would be the last class, unfortunately, that would take the picture from the top of the bridge with the twin towers in the background, not knowing that, of course. So I wanted to, you know, you want to be a part of that. It's not something you want to set. We have a, every class had a banner. So we took our banner up there and uh, took a real cool photo. And that's, you know, a lot easier to do it when you don't have the duress of somebody wanting to take their lives. And then once we get up there, we do additional training. We wrap one of the, class, the students up in the sked and we actually, you know, practice lowering them from the tower because... Prior to 9-11, the bridges were in New York were not secure at all. Anybody could jump on a bridge and go climb it, and it was a common practice for have these incidents that occurred on the bridge. The bridges have been much uh, much better secured because they became targets after 9-11, so uh, it's not nearly as easy to get on a bridge and climb it as a, uh, as a civilian. But yet, if somebody does get up there, you have to be able to get them down. And if they're emotionally disturbed, you, the, the best way to get them down is just to tie them up in a sked so they can't do any further uh, harm or threat to themselves and lower them down from the tower. So the training wasn't just going up and down the bridge. It was you know, being able to lower uh, people with, without assistance from the top of that bridge. Then it's got to be tough when you're up on the bridge and you have somebody that's threatening to jump. I mean, at what point do you put hands on and, and what's that like? Well, again, ideally, you want to be able to come and approach them from both sides. If you're going to make a grab, paramount is your safety. You have to make sure that you're secure and that you're not going to go anywhere. All emergency service cops, obviously, are trained in ropes and rope rescue. They're all tied in. And if you're going to make a grab, you'll really have to make sure that you, it's 100% and you're not, someone's not going to slip through your fingers. The way this guy was positioned on the corner of the stanchion with one leg over each side of the corner, it was impossible. There was no, there was no cornering him. And then, you know, he, he held the cards. He wouldn't allow us to get any closer. Typically, if he was on a ledge, you know, we would send officers in from both sides, of course, that are tied in. But on something like that, you have to rely on um, what they call your, your psychological you know, discussions or uh, your training to, to speak to people. Everybody has their strengths and weaknesses in the emergency service unit. While everybody has to know and do everything, some guys are better at doing things than others. Uh, and while I didn't have experience in it then, as time progressed on, I was always a good talker. So if there was somebody that needed to be talked down, that was one of my stronger points. I had what they called, you know, the gift of gab. And uh, that was always the, the, the best, you know, the best resolution was to be able to have them, you know, volunteer to come in again hoping that if they're still in that position when you get there, that they're, you know, 
looking for help. They're looking for some type of assistance. They're looking for somebody to talk to. There are many times you get called for a jumper down and you could turn around and say, wow, they really meant it. They were serious. There was no joke there. We'll jump in front of trains. Very common around the holidays. People got depressed. It's, you know, unfortunately, it's something that the police have to deal with on a, on a regular basis. Uh, mental illness is serious. It's a real thing in a big city. It's, it's commonplace. We would much rather talk somebody down and have them come off on their own accord than have to force them uh, to come up. But they've, they've been hundreds of, of bridge grabs, if you will. Most of them are from roadways uh, where officers come in from the same side to be able to grab somebody. Uh, some, somebody will distract them from one side and grab them from another. But it's all it's all calculated. It's all coordinated. It's all communicated. It's it's not, it's not reckless. It may look reckless on TV uh, or on the news. It's not. Trust me. It's calculated. It's coordinated. And it's communicated amongst everybody on the scene. We'll have a sign. We'll give a signal. We'll discuss it. Whoever's going to go out there. You know, if I touch my right ear, we're going in, whatever it is, it's all, it's all out there for everybody to do. Sounds like one of the more, and someone that doesn't work in the emergency services, but it sounds like one of the more dangerous things you guys can do is try and grab somebody off the edge of a building. Well, police work, they, we, they'd always say police work is inherently dangerous. And yes, it is. But the, the thing about the emergency service unit uh, and what set us apart from patrol and not to belittle patrol, because believe me, without patrol, there is no emergency service unit. But emergency service unit officers brought training, experience, and the right equipment. Okay. Everything is about equipment. You could do anything if you're equipped to do it. And that's, that's what they taught us. That's what we legitimately believe. Uh, that's why we had such big trucks and so much crap on them. We had we were the we had to be the answer to everything, and something like that. They taught you you can go to any height, you can climb the highest bridge in the world. You have to be able to trust your equipment, and we did. You know, we did the rope training. We did it at the coincidentally at the Nassau County Fire Service Academy, where the highest building I think was three or four stories. I looked in my memo book. We literally did it the week before. Actually, it was two weeks before. And it's there you learn to trust your equipment. You know, you put that harness on. And I'll, I'll, I'll never forget one of the toughest things is going to the top of the building and releasing your body off the, off that ledge. And I was never a light guy. And once you're over that ledge and you get that feeling that this thing's got me. You trust the rope. You trust the harness. You trust the, you know, the, the setup. You know, you have faith in everything that you're wearing and doing and you're training. You could do anything. Well, Vin, thanks for thanks for coming back on the podcast and sharing another one of your uh, incredible stories. Uh, I'm, I'm already going to hit you up to come back and, and share another one. So start digging, start digging through that locker. Like I said, uh, you know, you are certainly a fan favorite. I hear probably more comments about Detective Vinny than than anybody else. So I hope you'll uh, you'll dig through, find another story, and come back and see us again soon. Um, and thanks for sharing this story from the road. Thank you, Phil. Thanks again for having me. And stay safe, everyone. If you enjoyed this podcast. Please take a minute and give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or whichever podcast platform you're listening on. Stories from the Road is a Brown Dogs Media Group production. This one-man show is written, edited, and produced by Phil Klein. If you have a story you would like to share, please contact us at storiesfromtheroadpodcast at gmail.com. To learn more about this or other podcasts we're producing, please visit browndogsmedia.com. Thank you for listening.